Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We've enjoyed revisiting our Reimagine Chicago series in partnership with the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy. We've investigated how key institutions and systems work in the city and how they could work better. Let's now go back to how the legacy of criminalizing black students in early grades leads to what's known as the school-to-prison pipeline. And there was a fight with people I know, and I was trying to break it up. I had got a 90-day suspension for it. Her daughter was punished at school because of her hair color. Leaving a Muslim high school student handcuffed and humiliated over an innocent science project. Their dozens were suspended for wearing hoodies to school. And on Reset, you often hear from Chicago-area school officials, parents, and activists. But sometimes it's good to get an outside perspective and find out what's going on in other cities. So Jesse Hagopian is a Seattle-based educator where he recently taught ethnic studies. He's nationally known as a writer, speaker, and activist. Jesse is editor of Rethinking Schools magazine and has authored many volumes, including the co-edited work Teaching for Black Lives. He also serves on the National Steering Committee for Black Lives Matter at school. And he joins us now. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to Reset. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. First of all, tell us more about your magazine and movement called Rethinking Schools. For sure. So Rethinking Schools began in 1986 when a group of Milwaukee education activists and teachers, educators, community members all met to talk about how they could bring more critical voices into the conversation about the public schools. And, you know, we've since grown into one of the preeminent publishers of social justice education material. We have a quarterly magazine with subscribers in every state, and we have many different books that we've published to help educators implement a social justice approach to pedagogy. You know, books like Teaching for Black Lives that I co-edited or A People's Curriculum for the Earth to talk to kids about climate change and many others as well. And, you know, we have really helped support educators for years before even Black Lives Matter at school movement erupted to bring an anti-racist perspective into the classroom as we've seen for so long institutional racism mar the educational experience of the youth. Let's talk a bit more about you and get to know your background as a teacher and publisher. Now earlier we referenced your co-edited book titled Teaching for Black Lives. You talked about it as well. Jesse, talk more about that and how you first got involved in this work. Yeah, well, I began teaching in Washington, D.C. back in 2001, and an incredibly eye-opening experience for me in the elementary school that I taught because I would pass the White House on my way to work. And once I crossed the Anacostia River and went into southeast D.C., I was in one of the most impoverished and segregated neighborhoods in the country. And You know, the first assignment that I ever gave the kids, a research project to study someone from history that they admired that had helped create social change, 
their projects were destroyed because it rained into my classroom and flooded my room, destroyed the projects before they could present them. And I really learned from that experience so much. I saw in the world's richest country, in the seat of power, in the capital of that country, right. that Big difference east not... of the river, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is quite a stark barrier and demarcation of power, right? And just learned about the unequitable distribution of wealth and resources in this country and knew that I had to do something about it. And, you know, from that experience, moving back to my hometown of Seattle and teaching uh, middle school and high school and using corporate textbooks that too often whitewash the contributions and struggles of black people in this country. I saw over and over again, you know, things like textbooks claiming that uh, workers were brought from Africa during the 1700s. It was just incredible to see them erase the fact that our people were enslaved right? And knowing that we needed to create different types of resources to help empower our Black youth to see themselves in the curriculum. And that's really where Teaching for Black Lives comes out of. And it comes out of the conversations that our youth were already having. You know, youth are discussing the viral videos of police violence they're seeing. They're discussing it in the hallways, in the playgrounds, on the school buses, And the question for educators is, are we going to help those youth have scaffolded conversations and provide the historical context for what they're seeing? Or are we going to make education irrelevant to the things that are most pressing in our children's lives? And, and, you know, the book Teaching for Black Lives and then my new volume, Black Lives Matter at School, both help to empower educators to make education relevant for all of our students. Well, Seattle's known as a hub for progressive politics and social movements like police-free zones. What might we not know about Seattle, Jesse, when it comes to racial justice in general? Yeah, I appreciate that question because there is this outward appearance of being a progressive city, and yet people should know that the Black Lives Matter at School movement started in Seattle, and it started there for a reason. It started because a school named John Muir Elementary School wanted to wear Black Lives Matter shirts to school in 2016 in the wake of the killing of several black people and wanting to affirm the lives of their kids. And when the teachers wore those shirts to school or said they were going to, there was white supremacists who began bombarding the school with hate mail and then one made a bomb threat of an elementary school just because the educators wanted to affirm the lives of their black students right and so it was out of that struggle to support the school that black lives matter at school started and then the educators in philly saw what we had done and they took it to a whole nother level making a week of action And then it became a national week of action, and it was incredible. But the reason why educators in Seattle felt such an urgency to have to affirm the lives of our students is because they are under attack, just like in every city. So the Department of Education did a study that found black students were suspended at three times the rate of white students for the very same infractions. And that's very similar to what's happening all over the country. And I'll just end by saying 
that this past school year, there was an investigative report from our NPR station in Seattle that found that a second grade student named Jaleel at an elementary school in the North End, predominantly white school, uh, had a principal who locked this black second grader up in an outdoor facility the students called the cage. And he would unlock it to slide this student a tray of food that he had to eat on the cold, hard concrete because he didn't even get a desk. And this is a student who suffered from PTSD and who needed trauma counseling and a school psychologist, but instead he was isolated and locked up. And at lunchtime, you know, white kids would come by and laugh and point. And it is just heartbreaking to think about the trauma that that student and so many others have endured in the school system in Seattle and really all around the country. I want to dive deeper into um, the school-to-prison pipeline. What does it mean to you and your colleagues? Well, the school-to-prison pipeline is not a loose metaphor, but it is actually a very concrete reality and also a related concept of the school-to-prison nexus where there's really this connection and, and schools increasingly resembling prisons like what Jaleel went through in his experience. But the school-to-prison pipeline to me starts with curriculum that does not reflect the lives of our BIPOC students. And so when they don't see themselves in the curriculum, a lot of times they get labeled as defiant when they're not paying attention. And sometimes that's better understood as resistance to racist curriculum. And then there's zero tolerance discipline policies in place in so many school districts across the country that mandate suspensions and expulsions for various infractions. And then The children that get pushed out of school are more likely not to graduate, and then they're more likely not to get a job, and then they're more likely to end up incarcerated. And just a few blocks from the high school where I teach in Seattle, they built a brand new $200 million jail for kids. And there could be no better example of our system's commitment to punishment rather than uplift than this building that stole resources from our community that could be used to support our kids so they never have to end up in those facilities in the first place. I mean, imagine if we lowered the class size, if we had a nurse in every school, if we had school psychologists and school counselors in every school, our kids would be thriving and they wouldn't end up in those facilities. But in this country, we have 14 million children that go to a school that has a police officer but is missing one of the following, a nurse, a school psychologist, or a counselor. And and that's an outrageous set of priorities that has to be transformed. Well, Jesse, the irony is that many Black students are taught by Black teachers in schools, and districts are headed by Black administrators. So what do you make of that? Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, first I would say that the vast majority of educators in America are white. Um, I think some 80% of teachers are white in this country. And one of the demands of Black Lives Matter at school is to hire more black teachers. And I think that's an important reform because we've seen statistics and important studies that show that 
a student that has even one black teacher in their K-12 career have significantly higher graduation rates. And I think that study needs to be understood by school districts across the country, and they need to implement programs to hire more black educators. But we can't just hire more black educators into a system that is fundamentally racist, right? That is structurally racist, because even with more black educators in a system that is not equitable, it's too much to overcome those inequities. So if you put black teachers into overcrowded classrooms, into schools that are over-policed, and communities that are under-resourced, you're setting them up for failure, right? And so Uh, We actually have to change the structure of our school systems in addition to hiring more black teachers. We have to end zero-tolerance discipline policies and replace it with restorative justice, right? And there's been incredible studies in places like Oakland Public Schools that have shown what happens when you end zero-tolerance and you use restorative approaches where when harm is caused in the school, you bring together the person who was harmed with the person who did the harm and community and peers and you hold discussions about how to actually solve the problem rather than just pushing the kid out of school. Was that effective? Oh, absolutely. And I wish that every school district across the country would study the results in the Oakland Public Schools and see that the suspension rates plummeted and the graduation rates increased. In my own hometown of Seattle, there's a high school named Rainier Beach High School that the school district wanted to close like so many school districts across the country. I know in Chicago, they did sweeping school closures, closing like 50 schools all together in one year. And instead of closing the school, the community rose up to defend Rainier Beach High School and they brought in restorative justice programs. And now the school went from the lowest graduation rate to one of the highest in the cities. And I think that's a lesson for the whole country. Well, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and many others, they've opened up conversation and action on police reform, especially over the last year or so. Tell us how you see police reform tying into education reform. Yeah, that's such an important question. And the brave youth in Minneapolis who led the struggle for police justice, for justice for George Floyd, and for transforming public safety, helped to end police in the Minneapolis public schools. And then it spread to the St. Paul public schools and to the Oakland public schools and the Denver public schools and the Seattle public schools and many others where youth and educators joined together to say we want the millions of dollars spent on over-policing our youth to be spent on empowering our youth and healing our youth and nurturing our youth as well. And I think because of this incredible uprising for black lives that erupted in the spring and summer of 2020, it was called the broadest protest in U.S. history by the Washington Post. Because of this struggle, so many more educators were interested in making education relevant to their students because everybody was talking about the uprising, right? And so if you're not discussing it, your classroom quickly 
becomes irrelevant to the things that students are discussing and care about so deeply. And so many educators began diversifying their curriculum, bringing in anti-racist materials. And that really scared people who want to defend the status quo, and it emboldened white supremacists and racists, right? And so we're seeing that backlash now. You know, I talked to a friend of mine who's a teacher in Iowa, and she said many of the white teachers in her school began changing their curriculum to add more context and to bring in resources to help students understand black history. And one teacher started assigning Alice Walker, and they never had before the great black author. And and now there's a bill that passed that bans the teaching of structural racism in Iowa. Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds has signed a law yesterday banning the teaching of critical race theory. House File 802 does not mention critical race theory by name, but it bans particular concepts. As of July 1st, teachers won't be able to teach that the United States or the state of Iowa is fundamentally or systemically racist. They're also barred from race scapegoating and race stereotyping and from creating discomfort or guilt because of one's race. So it's now illegal to talk about structural racism in Iowa and that teacher was scared to teach Alice Walker because they were afraid of the conversations that might come up in the classroom. That's really scary. Well, what is next on the horizon for rethinking schools and how can people subscribe to your magazine or participate? Yeah. So Rethinking Schools and Teaching for Change have partnered to launch the Zen Education Project, and we have over 130,000 educators across the country who have registered on our website and downloaded our free people's history lessons. And the Zen Education Project has partnered with Black Lives Matter at School to put on some really important rallies, the June 12th rally to hashtag teach truth and to make sure that educators and parents and students know that there's a growing movement against these bills banning the teaching of structural racism because, you know, if these bills pass, we can't even talk about the U.S. Constitution anymore because that document originally stated that black people were three-fifths of a human being. And so how can you teach about even the founding of America without talking about enslavement and genocide and founding documents that had structural racism embedded in them? And so Rethinking Schools is committed to telling these truths and to helping organize rallies like the one that we have planned for August 27th through the 29th. And we have a major rally that Black Lives Matter at School is leading on October 14th calling on educators to teach the truth about structural racism regardless of the law and even committing civil disobedience in states where it's illegal. So I'm really excited to participate in that. And people can learn more at RethinkingSchools.org and the ZinEducationProject.org or BlackLivesMatterAtSchool.com. Well, finally, Jesse, you know, the focus of this series is to really look towards solutions, right? So if you could reimagine and build America's education system From scratch, how would it look? Yes, I love that question. And we're going to do it too, right? Our ancestors. That's the hope. Yes, yes. It was illegal for my black ancestors to read and write. And people said that system would last forever, and it didn't because black people organized. They snuck off plantations. They taught each other to read and write. 
and they organized abolitionist networks and they fought and brought slavery down and we're going to organize and fight and transform our school system to make sure it celebrates black lives and nurtures all students. And I would just say that my vision for what the public schools can be is very different from what the current model is. I think that we need to end the segregation of subjects altogether so that instead of taking language arts and math and science and all the social studies and and various classes, what if we arranged our classes around real problems that our society was facing in the world today and then we integrated the subjects into helping us solve those problems? So what if we had a class about should we allow the coal trains to come through Seattle? There's a live debate about whether to allow the increased coal mining and the use of coal through the trains in our city. And then we could study, you know, science by studying climate change, right? And we could do language arts through reading and writing about environmentalism and making recommendations to City Hall about that. There's so many other live questions that our students are facing in our society today. Are you suggesting teaching kids about real life, Jesse? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Problem-based learning, right? Wow. We'll find that kids, instead of being asleep in class and drooling on the desk (laughs) because they don't see how the subject relates to their life, we'll be organizing our schools around the, the questions that are most pressing. And then bringing math and science and language arts and social studies into service of solving those problems. And I think when we do that and when we create community schools that have wraparound services with eye care and dental care and health care and three meals a day and the counseling services they need, we're going to see a whole different kind of society emerge. And I'm excited to be part of the struggle for that vision of the public schools. That's Jesse Hagopian. He has taught ethnic studies at Garfield High School in Seattle, Washington. And he's editor of Rethinking Schools magazine and co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives. Jesse, such a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And that's it for today's Reset. Come back all this week to hear the best from our Reimagine Chicago series on education. For more Reset interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It really helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.